0: Well, good evening welcome to uh, a new series. This is our kind of Christmas series, Advent series. We do three Wednesdays in December for all ages throughout the church. So I'm glad those of you joining us online. This series is one of my favorite topics to talk about because I think it'll be kind of mind expanding. At least I hope it will be mind expanding. So let me say a prayer and we're gonna jump right in. Lord, thank you for the blessings you showered upon us. Uh, we confess to you and lift up to you the concerns for healing and for anxiety and for those who mourn. And Father, I pray for your presence to uh, be with everyone in the sound of my voice with our needs. And Father, we also praise you and give thanks to you for the many blessings that we have. I do pray for this nation and I pray for our leaders and I pray that you would turn their hearts Toward you father we know that no matter what the bumps and twists and turns may be in history that you are the Lord of history and that you are the God of all time and I pray father that all things would work to your plan in Christ's name amen well here's the number to text questions during class uh, It should be on your handouts as well this series is called the story behind Christmas And it's a little bit uh, different take than what you typically hear about the Christmas story. And let me tell you what I mean. So when you think of Christmas, you tend to think of shepherds and a manger and angels singing and a star leading uh, wise men from the East. And uh, you you tend to think about all the things and the trappings of Christmas. And though they're all true things, nothing wrong with that at all. And we also tend to think about the amazing things that went into Christmas happening. What do I mean by that? I mean two things, timing. Romans says, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for us. And so we've talked in other lessons before, and I won't go back over it, but what it took for God to get the world prepared for Christmas to happen with the Greek language and the Roman roads and the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. The whole world was literally peaceful. It was the perfect time in history for Christ to come and the gospel to spread. And God orchestrated that, and we've looked at that in other lessons. So the timing of this is by God's design, and the purpose is by God's design. All the way since Genesis chapter three and the fall of humanity, God has had a plan working. We call it the plan of redemption, but it's really because of his great love for us. God has set in motion a plan to redeem us, to buy us back. Another word that I like a lot that gets used in the New Testament all the time is to reconcile us to him. Uh, It's not that he had a problem, we had a problem and we couldn't solve it. And God's plan had a purpose to solve our problem for us. And this passage in Philippians 2, beautiful little Christmas passage. Your attitude, Paul says, should be the same as that of Christ, who being in very nature God, in other words, He is God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one. But he didn't consider equality with God something to hold on to, meaning that he was willing to empty himself and take the form of a servant and being made in human likeness. This is the essence of Christmas. We call it the incarnation, the becoming human. God becomes flesh and lives among us, to quote John chapter one. And so the purpose was that because we couldn't solve our problem, Christ would live a sinless life and Christ would bear our punishment on his shoulders thereby paying the debt that we owed. And so the timing and the purpose of that manger and those shepherds and that baby born is just amazing. That Christmas story is an amazing story. But what I'd like to talk about is what went on behind that story because I wanna suggest to you that that is the tip of an iceberg. And what I wanna talk to you about is this part of the Christmas story. The part of the Christmas story that's below the waterline, that's not so obvious and not so apparent. What do I mean by that? Well, there's a passage in Ephesians chapter six, and this is just a biblical truth. It's all over the Old Testament, the New Testament, but this is a biblical truth. Paul says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And what he means by that is there's more than this universe in God's creation. We experience the universe in really four dimensions, you know, three-dimensional space, and then the linearity of time. And we understand that this universe is part, but it's only part of God's creation. We don't see beyond this universe. We don't even see to the ends of this universe. But what Paul is saying is the struggle that's going on is more than just oppressive governments and uh, people killing other people and man's inhumanity to man and all those things. He said, yes, those are evil things, but your struggle actually goes beyond that because he said, we actually struggle against the authorities and the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So what's he talking about there? Well, throughout the Bible, the shorthand that's used to describe God's creation are the heavens and the earth, the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. And it's a way that, actually it's a, a way of talking about this that people have understood for thousands of years. So we might wanna use more scientific language, but this has worked pretty well because people have understood it. And what does that mean? The earthly realm is this universe that you see, and the heavenly realms are the things beyond this. There is a reality beyond the four dimensions in which we live. And so Paul is saying, actually, there's as much or more going on in the spiritual realm as there is in the physical realm. Well, the same thing is true about Christmas. But before I go there, I wanna answer a few common questions. And the first question is, What are these forces of evil in the heavenly realms? Who lives in the heavenly realms? Well, obviously God is a being that is beyond space and time. He became human and inhabited space and time, but he exists outside space and time. And so clearly God is the creator of and inhabitor of those lands, but they're also created beings. This passage in Colossians refers to them. He said, Christ, he's talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible things and things you can't see, whether they're thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Christ and for Christ. So clearly there are invisible things. There are things in the heavenly realm and there are beings in the heavenly realm. So let me move around the scripture a little bit and give you an idea. We call these beings angels. The word angel to us can mean a lot of different things. It can either mean a little fat baby with wings. Uh, It can, you know, in some of the more uh, modern Netflix series, it can be people like human beings engaged in struggles, et cetera. We have imagined angels in a lot of ways. But the word itself just means a messenger, a servant, if you will. They're they're about God's business. They are the agents of God's business in the spiritual and earthly realms. And so they serve God. In Job, you get a reference to them in this way. Where were you, God says to Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Who determined its measurements? Who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone? He's talking about the creation of this universe. He said, when I did that, when the morning stars sang and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Well, now that's interesting. That says that, this is God speaking to Job. He said, when I created the earth, you weren't here. But there were people here, the sons of God, which is another way in the Old Testament they refer to angels, these created beings. It's just a phrase, it's a way that they're referred to. And you're gonna see it again, particularly in the book of Job, but also other places. And so before this whole universe was created, God had created these angels, these angelic beings, these beings that inhabit our space-time, but that also live in a spiritual realm. Jewish sources picked up this truth. And so this is from a book that is not in your Bible. It is not inspired. The reason I'm including it is I want you to know that the Jews, this was written, oh, I think a couple hundred years before Jesus. Jewish people in their writings referred to these beings because of the Old Testament. So for example, on the first day, Jubilees says, God created the heavens which are above, and the earth, and the waters, and all of the spirits which minister before him, angels. So according to myth, Jewish myth said, obviously he created the angels, they thought he created them on the first day. Doesn't matter to me if he created them on the first day, sixth day, or day zero. But the point is is that the Jews understood that there were these beings, these angelic beings. Early Christians also understood this. This is another book that is not in your Bible. It is not inspired by God. And the reason I quote it is so that you'll know that the early Christians also read the Bible and know that there are these angelic beings, that they're real and that they're involved in God's business. They're part of the heavenly realms. So the Shepherd of Hermas is a book that was written by a Christian, not inspired by the Holy Spirit, it's not in your New Testament, but it's written by a Christian. Think of it as kind of like a Max Lucado book. It's a really good book, but it's not scripture, but it's really good, bestseller, I think. And so it says, these are the holy angels who were created first. So my point to you is, is that the scripture talks about these beings and that Jews from time immemorial and Christians from the very beginning understood that these were heavenly beings in the heavenly realms and that they existed to serve God. So who are these forces in the spiritual realm? Well, the ones that we know about are angels. Angels seem to have the capacity and the capability to inhabit a three-dimensional space. They also inhabit the spiritual realm. They serve God and you'll see references to angels at various parts of scripture. For example, one that you know very well this time of year is if you remember an angel visited Mary and it was the angel Gabriel. And he said, I stand in the presence of God and I have come to tell you, you are most favored by God and you will have a son and he will be the savior. And so that's an angel being about God's business in the world. Angels are doing a lot of things and we're gonna talk about some of those things, but that kind of answers the question, I hope, of who are these beings that are in the heavenly realms? They are created beings, there's no other God. They're created by God and they're created for a purpose and that is to serve God and serve his purposes. Well then, in that case, what are demons? because we also know the Bible talks about demons. So let me pause there. We'll do a question on the angels before we get into the demons and complicate things. Question.
1: Well, it's really about um, these different books. Who decides if something is inspired or not and what is the criteria used for that?
0: Okay, that is a big subject and I'll give you a really short answer, but it, we ought to talk about that sometime. How did the books of the Bible get into the canon? I'll tell you the the, The real answer, and I'm gonna give you the mechanics of it is, these are books that were inspired by the Holy Spirit and God orchestrated getting them in. If you know the story of our Bible, you would go, only God could preserve this Bible. I mean, it is a miracle that you have these documents considering how much effort went into destroying all of these documents. So that's the short answer in terms of When these letters were collected together, the early church understood that some of these were the word of God. Think Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They absolutely knew who wrote them, they knew what they said, they agreed with each other, they knew that was scripture. They saw, uh, I showed you Hermas, Shepherd of Hermas from about 150 AD, it's pretty early, and there were earlier books than that. Many of them didn't even pretend to be from God. There are all kinds of Christian writings and letters from the early 100s, but none of them say, thus saith the Lord, right? None of them say that. They say, this is a letter from me, Joe Christian, to you, my fellow Christian, somewhere else. They don't pretend to be. So most of them don't even pretend to be. And so the three basic criteria that you would look at is it had to have an apostolic, connection. In other words, it needed to be connected to an apostle, one of the 12 that God uh, ordained. So for example, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew was one of the disciples, but he's also, after the resurrection, one of the apostles sent out, and so was uh, John. So Mark, however, the early church knew, traveled with Peter and wrote down what Peter said. So what you see in Mark are the little sermons of Peter. What you see in Luke, Luke tells you what he did. He said, I'm not an apostle, but I spent a ton of time with Paul and I interviewed a lot of people and I'm gonna write down what what I have found out. So you have to have an apostolic connection. Second thing is it needs to be orthodox, meaning it needs to agree with scripture. There are books today, like the Gospel of Thomas, there are a million of them, that, and they're much later, by the way, much later, that people say, oh, we should put that in the Bible. Well, it doesn't even slightly agree with the rest of the New Testament. So apostolic connection, it needed to be uh, orthodox, meaning it needed to agree with the uh, scriptures. And then thirdly, it needed to have been in wide use for a period of time by the church. In other words, it was broadly, widely accepted by the church that this is a letter that Paul wrote to the Colossian church a Galatians. So that's longer than I meant to get into, and my apologies. But those are the three criteria that they used when they were collecting these. And it it's not a secret uh, conspiracy like you'll see on the History Channel. It actually wasn't that much dispute about it because most of these... Most of these writings don't even pretend to be inspired writings. So good question. So you have the angels, where are the demons? Well, let's get some hints. Let's look around the scripture where the the Bible isn't really all that interested in saying, there's not a book that says, hey, I wanna tell you all about angels. God says, no, that's interesting, but I got really important stuff to tell you about. I wanna talk to you about salvation. But you'll see references to angels. And so in the second letter that Peter wrote, Apostle Peter, He's writing about false teachers. And he said, in their greed, these false teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them. In other words, don't don't kid yourself. God will judge these false teachers. He said, and their destruction is not sleeping, it's coming. Because if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, literally Tartarus, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. Now that's also interesting. So we know that there are angels and we know that some of the angels rebelled against God and God, their condemnation, their judgment is coming because they rebelled against God. So apparently angels have will, you know, not robots, right? They have will and some at least, chose to disobey God. That's a demon. Demons don't look different than angels. Demons aren't special created beings. They are created beings that are angels that rebelled against God. We use the word demon. The New Testament uses the word demons or devils, and they're not trying to describe a different kind of being. They're just saying, that's the name that we've given to the angels that rebelled against God. Uh, This, I'm gonna go outside the Bible again, just because I wanna show you that uh, this is a great insight into what Jews were thinking in the time of Jesus. And in the first book of Enoch, I'll quote another one of Enoch's books, I came to an empty place and I saw there neither a heaven above nor an earth below, but a chaotic and terrible place. What he's saying, what the Jews are saying is, is there's the heavenly realm and there's the earthly realm, and God has apparently appointed a place We call that hell, that's just the word we use, a place where you would go if you were judged rebellious against God. So the Jews thought that that was a thing and they understood that some of the angels had rebelled. Back to the New Testament, the book of Jude in the New Testament, and the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their home, meaning they rebelled in heaven, these he has kept in darkness bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day the great day or the great day of the lord is judgment day we typically think of judgment day as when human beings give an account to god and we are judged and those of us who belong to christ and are covered by the blood of christ will be acquitted but those who do not god will say your sin is on you and what What do you have? And your answer would be, "I got nothing. You know I, I, we're not reconciled, are we? We tend to think of judgment as being for human beings, and it is. but judgment is also going to be rendered. Condemnation is going to be rendered for those angels that have rebelled against God. In fact, this is Jesus speaking in matthew twenty five. And again, the reference to the angels is just a side thing. What he's really talking about is judgment day. And he's talking about the sheep and the goats. And he says, judgment's gonna be like that. God's gonna come and he's gonna sort out the people of God and the people who were rebelled against God. But listen to what he says at the very end. He says, then he will say to those on his left, those who'd rebelled, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, the demons. And so you get this sense that uh, from the scriptures that there were these created beings with a purpose, some of them left their purpose and rebelled against God, and God has judged them to be rebels, to be sinners, if you will, and their judgment is awaiting, and hell, what you think of as hell, a place of eternal fire, was created for them. And Jesus says, and all those who rebel, humans or angels, will be sent to that cursed place. Make sense? So that's what is go. these are some of the beings in the heavenly realms and they're angels and the rebellious angels we call demons. Well, this word, the devil, so who is the devil? What is that? That's an interesting phrase. Well, the devil turns out to be the ringleader of those who rebelled against God. And we have a lot of names, and the Bible has a lot of names for the devil. He is uh, called Satan, or the Satan, which means, that's just a Hebrew word that means an accuser, or a deceiver. And you'll see him referred to that way, particularly in the book of Job, but you'll see it quite a bit. He's also called the dragon, or the serpent, You think of the serpent in the Garden of Eden, what was his purpose, what was his MO? He was a deceiver, he was a liar, right? Jesus said, the devil is a liar. And so this angel who was cast out of heaven is we call him the devil or Satan or the dragon, uh, various other things. So what does the Bible say about Satan, about this angel, who was the ringleader to rebel against God. There are a lot of cryptic passages, but I'm gonna show you what people have understood about Satan and I'm gonna go to a lot of different sources, but I wanna start with the scripture. So in the book of Ezekiel, this particular passage has long been thought not only to be talking about a king, the king of Tyre, but also to be referencing Satan. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel and he said, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre. This is what the Lord says. You were the model, and the reason people think that this isn't just about the king of Tyre is, this sounds like you're describing a creature that's way beyond any human being. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Think angels now, with God as he creates every precious stone adorns you ruby topaz emerald etc cetera, etc cetera. it says you were anointed as a guardian cherub there are two words that are used uh, to describe angels in uh, the old testament a cherub and a seraph these are just uh, cherubim seraphim These are just Hebrew words that refer to angels and you'll see visions of angels and they'll call them, but you were a guardian because I ordained you so, meaning God created these angels and he gave them work to do. He gave them missions to accomplish that fit with his plan. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until wickedness was found in you. So I drove you in disgrace from the Mount of God, and I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor, so I threw you to the earth. So this passage, the Jews, Ezekiel, Uh, Think about Ezekiel being written about 600 BC, right around there. From early, early on that time, the Jews looked at this and said, this is a double prophecy. This is talking about the king of Tyre, but this has gotta be talking about something way bigger than that. And they understood it to be talking about Satan, or another name for Satan uh, is Lucifer. And I'll show you where that comes from in a minute. The Koran, I know you're thinking, oh my gosh, we're quoting the Koran. Yes, because it's not inspired, it's not in your Bible, but I want you to realize that Jews, Christians, and Muslims who share the Old Testament have this image of Satan. So it is true, Satan is a real being, and I just want you to see what is thought about Satan. Well, what we just read was that Satan was proud in the Quran, they have the idea that Satan, whom they call Iblis in uh, Arabic, was envious. And so I just thought you'd find this interesting. And this is God speaking in the Quran, so uh, take that with a grain of salt. But I want you to know what is the tradition there? It says, God created humanity, then fashioned you, then told all the angels, I want you to serve. Adam, I want you to serve humanity. And by the way, this isn't inspired, but Muhammad had read the New Testament and read the Old Testament because the Quran is, you know, think Quran 630 AD. I mean, it's way, way, way after the Old Testament and New Testament. And so he's read that. He knows what the Bible says. And that's what the Bible says is that angels are there to do God's bidding in the plan of redemption. That's why Gabriel comes to Mary. And you'll see other things that the angels are doing. And so God said, I want you to serve humanity. And they all agreed to serve humanity except Iblis. And he said, what prevented you from serving humanity? And Iblis said, I am better than Adam. You created me out of fire while you created him out of mud. that's tradition but the point uh, that people have always thought is that satan is proud and satan is envious satan doesn't want to serve humanity satan wants you to serve him and so he rebelled against god he said i'm not going to serve them i'm going to make them serve me and so milton Now I'm moving to the Middle Ages, and again, this is not inspired. This is Paradise Lost, it's just a work of literature, but you get this idea. Milton understands this as well and sees envy and pride in Satan, and has Satan say this, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Maybe you've heard that before. That comes from Milton's Paradise Lost. And so it's just a work of literature, but you can see it being informed by the reality that you have this angel Satan who rebels against God because of his pride and because of his envy and because of his ambition. Back to the Bible. Book of Isaiah, this passage is also typically thought to be talking about uh, Satan. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn, in Latin, because remember the Bible was translated uh, from Greek and Hebrew into Latin, and so from about 400 to 1500 AD, the Catholic Church used a Latin Bible. That phrase is basically, it comes down to Lucifer. And so that phrase, the thought is, this is talking about Satan, and in Latin, that's it, and that's where you get the name Lucifer is the son of the dawn. It's just a a phrase to describe the majesty of this created being. He says, how you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn, you have been cast down to the earth, you who once were very powerful. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, I will sit enthroned, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. In other words, Satan wants to be God. Satan wants to be served, to be worshiped, in fact. And so you have the pride of Satan, you have the envy of humanity, and then you have the ambition to be God. And so you see this, by the way, in the Garden of Eden. So what does the serpent, Satan, what does he basically say to Eve? Think about this for a minute. He says to Eve, he's deceptive. He says, did God really say that you can't eat of anything? Well, he knows better than that. And she says, well, no, actually we just can't eat of that. Because if we do, we're gonna die. And then he lies, he said, you actually won't die. He says, you know why God did that? Because he knows that if you eat of that, you will be like God. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't actually think Adam or Eve had in their mind that they wanted to be like God. Who wants to be like God? Satan wants to be like God. And, you know, psychologically speaking, he's projecting. You know, I think we understand that now. That's a joke. And so bottom line is Satan tempts her with what he wants and he lies to her, and so she does, and you know, the catastrophic results. But he's called the accuser, he's called the deceiver. And so you see this ambition in Satan to corrupt humanity. Back outside the Bible again, I've quoted the book of Enoch a few times when we talk about angels, because the book of Enoch is kind of like, you know how uh, Alcorn wrote a great book called Heaven? It's just, you can find it in the bookstores now, and it's just a book that, quotes the scriptures and talks about heaven and so forth. Well, nobody thinks that book is inspired by God, but it's interesting to read. It's based on the scriptures and you would read it, you'd be edified by it, but nobody's gonna think, why didn't they put that in the New Testament? That's the way these books are. They're interesting and they're edifying, but they're not inspired by God. But I quote Enoch a lot because Enoch is what the Jews of Jesus' time thought. Some of it was true, some of it was not, some of it was just kind of mythical type stuff, but this was the way they thought about angels and demons. And so when you look at this idea of ambition, the book of second Enoch, which is written say 200 years before Jesus, this is interesting, it says this, but one of the order of archangels as one of the ruling angels like Gabriel and Michael, that is, Satan, deviated together with all the angels under his command. He thought up the impossible idea that he might place his throne higher than the clouds. Well, you know where the writer of this book got that. He got it from the scripture, right? That's true. He did have this ambition that he would put his throne higher than the clouds and that he might become equal to God. So in the heavenly realms, now this Ephesians passage about our battle is not just flesh and blood, it's in the heavenly realms. We're not at war with God's angels. They're God's servants to do good for us, to move forward his plan of redemption. But there are fallen angels, rebellious angels, we use the term demons for them, who are working against you and me and are in rebellion to god question
1: yes i have several questions about this one subject if heaven is holy and perfect and angels are holy and perfect as you read to us a few minutes ago and they are existing in the presence of almighty god how is it possible for them to choose to rebel and what does that mean for the eternal experience of humans in the presence of god
0: Good question, again, a big subject. I'll try to keep this answer a little bit shorter. But first of all, what the conclusions to which I'm gonna tell you come from the scripture. I can't, this this isn't gonna be the result of reason. Obviously, angels were able to choose to sin because the scripture says they did. So I'm gonna infer from that, they certainly had that capability meaning that they were created with a will, like we are, we too can make choices, right? And that some of them were literally able, Satan, for example, to say, I'm not gonna serve humanity. In fact, I'm not serving you anymore. I'm gonna be God. And so this is obviously possible. And angels had the ability to choose. Now, here's the really interesting part that you don't have quite as much information in the scripture about not definitive like that, and that is, what does that then mean for us in heaven? Okay, I'm gonna give you a really short version of this, but I want you to, if, if we, everybody went to heaven, you would have a mess. You're gonna have rebellion in heaven, but everybody doesn't go to heaven, do they? Who goes to heaven? Those who have placed their trust in Jesus, I'm gonna use the theological terms. Those who have been justified, meaning I place my trust in Christ, not in my own ability to measure up to God, that's called being justified. Or another word I like is, at that moment, we have been reconciled to God because of Jesus Christ. Not because of what I did, but because of him. Then, and these things are all connected. These are not separate things. You become sanctified. That's a theological word that just means what is the spirit of God that, that when you believed, remember Ephesians 1, when you believed, you received the promised Holy Spirit, God placed his spirit inside you. What's that spirit doing in you? That spirit is cleaning up your act. In other words, that spirit is changing your affections over time. That spirit is making us holy. That's what the word sanctified means. It, that spirit in us is shaping us into the image of Jesus Christ. And you may say, man, I've got a long way to go. Yes, but you know what? God is faithful and he, the scripture says he will accomplish it. Not you will accomplish it. The spirit of God in you is powerful enough to, to shape you into the image of Jesus Christ. And then when you enter into heaven, when you're judged, you are glorified. Scripture says we do not yet know what we will look like, but we know we will look like Jesus. So here's the answer to that question with that backdrop. For you to get into heaven, the Spirit has done the work inside you, you do not want to sin. Your your and my affections, emotions, desires have been so made holy that we desire to serve God. So it is not Orthodox Christian doctrine that we will be able to sin, not because we have lost our free will, but because the Spirit has conformed us into the image of Jesus Christ. It's not a big answer. I've left some things out, but that's a short answer.
1: Okay, so clearly Jesus is not a path of salvation for the demons and the devil. Is there a redemption plan for them?
0: There is there a redemption plan for the demons who have rebelled? Nothing in scripture tells us that that is the case. In fact, the scripture implies that their judgment has already been made and they are being held for the day of judgment. In other words, their judgment is already assured. So I can only say to you what the scripture says. Can God do things he hasn't told me? Definitely. Absolutely. Can he do things he hasn't told Laura? I don't know. I think she's more in tune. But in all seriousness, if I just stay with what the scripture says, there's nothing in there that would indicate that that is the case.
1: Okay, you're probably gonna get to these things, but questions about the power of the demons, how much power we ascribe to them and what is legitimate.
0: Yes, and- I hadn't planned to, but we'll just talk about that right now. Yes, that's and, a good question. And
1: is the devil and or the demons bound?
0: Ah, now that's a trickier question. Yeah, so by the way, this is a warm-up. We're gonna do Revelation in January. And so I thought, well, we might as well talk about the demons for a while. But I really want you to, I want, when we get through with this, you're gonna go, wow, Christmas is a bigger deal than I realized it was, okay? All right, so demons, angels, same thing. They are created beings. They are not omnipotent, all-powerful. They have more power than you and I do. They can live in a spiritual realm. They can live in this realm. I mean, they're obviously beings of greater power. That's what Satan had heartburn with. He goes, those puny things, you made them out of some mud. He said, I'm way more powerful than they are. I'm not serving them. I've got no humility at all. And so they are clearly more powerful, but they're not all-powerful. They're not gods. They're not like God. They're not omniscient meaning they do not know everything. They are not omnipresent. I'm giving you all the attributes of God here. They're not omnipresent. They can't be everywhere at one time and know everything. Demons can't read your mind. There's nowhere in scripture that indicates that they have ESP. They might have artificial intelligence, but they don't have ESP. I gotta tell you though, okay, sideline here. If you're on social media, do you ever feel like that it's reading your mind. Yeah, have you ever done some things and all of a sudden it pops up, you know what you would really like, what, this? You go, yeah, I really would. How did you read my mind? Yeah, so anyway, they can't read your mind, but they might be as good as social media. And so my point is that they are, are limited in their abilities. And so if you think of demons as just being these really powerful beings, I'd rather you not think about it in that way. They are different than we are, but they do not have the powers of God. And when you think about a battle between Satan and God, Satan being a rebel, rebelling against God, this is not even, to say it's not an equal battle is misleading. This isn't even a battle. I mean, God's power is so much greater, okay? So, what happened then? And this is the an interesting, another interesting part. So you've got the angels created, they're created with a purpose. You get the Satan, and he and some of his followers rebel. And so what happens when they have this rebellion? And so in the book of Revelation, you'll read this in chapter 12, and there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. Michael is an archangel. He has angels that report to him, kind of like Lucifer or Satan did with him. And so they rebel against the angels. And in some sense, there is a conflict, there's war. And the dragon, Satan, and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon, Satan, was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth along with his angels. In other words, there's rebellion and they are cast out of heaven. They lose their ability to, to, to be in the presence of God and to see God. Jesus says in Luke chapter 10, this is really interesting, but this is Jesus uh, telling you what he saw. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And then he goes on to talk. So these are just side things. And so this idea of Satan rebels, there's no chance Satan wins that war and God casts him out of the heavenly realms into uh, the earthly realms. So the interesting question is, So you've got these rebellious angels. They've been cast out of heaven. You have gotta be asking yourself, what are they up to now? Well, the book of Job gives you an interesting hint to this. Now, there was a day when the sons of God, and it's not about Satan, but it gives us an interesting hint. When the sons of God, and you remember we talked about this, those are angels, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them and the Lord said to Satan from where have you come and Satan answered and said from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down it and so Satan is active in this universe in this realm he's been cast out of heaven Jesus says this Uh, these are both quotes from Jesus in the gospel of John now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world, think about it, this is his reference. Jesus says that Satan is the current ruler of this world. He will be cast out. What does Jesus mean by that? In what sense is he gonna be cast out? He's already been cast out of heaven. And now he's the ruler of this world. We'll talk about what that means. But Jesus says that and he's about to be cast out. This is right before the crucifixion of Jesus. When Jesus is crucified and raised from the dead, the devil's fate is sealed. And he has been defeated all over the New Testament. But Jesus said that ruler of this world is gonna be cast out. And then again in chapter 14, now I've told you all these things before they happen. So when they happen, you'll believe. I will no longer talk with you because the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. And so I'm gonna stop there. And I just wanted you to get the idea of what is Satan doing? Satan still has pride, he still has envy, and he still has ambition. And he wants to be God. And guess who he wants to worship him? You, because He doesn't want humanity to worship God, he wants humanity to worship him. And how does he do, how does he go about that? He's a liar, he's a deceiver, he's an accuser, he's a tempter, you'll see that word also used for the devil. He wants your allegiance to come to him. He wants to rule this world. Again, Milton really caught it when he said, the devil said better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. And so Jesus says he is the ruler of this current world. It is a battle for the hearts and the souls of humanity. And Satan desires to have people worship him. When we get to the book of Revelation, I want you to notice something. So you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity, God. Satan is gonna set himself up as God. And so he has a Christ called the Antichrist. And he has a spirit, this chapter 11 of Revelation when we get there, the false prophet. And so he has his own little unholy trinity, doesn't he? If you read the book of Revelation and you understand what Satan is doing, you realize he really wants to be God. He really wants to rule this world and you worship him and he's gonna make his own trinity. So that's what Satan is doing. And then I love this passage in Ephesians 2 because it kind of sums this up pretty well. This is Paul talking about you and me and every Christian who's ever lived before we became followers of Christ. He said, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. So let me stop there. You're thinking, we know that. That's true. Our sins were on our shoulders and we had no way to reconcile with God. So before Christ, we alone were dead. I mean, we just didn't know it yet. Our punishment is already set. It's sort of like those demons. Our judgment is already set. Anybody that comes before God carrying their sin is condemned by our own sin, we're condemned. He said, as for you, you used to be dead. You just didn't know it yet in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That's another way of saying the ruler of this world, Satan. And the interesting thing is the scripture says this, you serve God or you serve Satan. And most people don't think that. They think, well, I'm not gonna serve God, but I'm gonna serve me. And Satan says, I love it when you say that. I love it when you deceive yourself like that. Everyone's going to serve someone. To think that we are going to be God and we are gonna be the master of our own fate and we're gonna be the architect of our destiny, what does that sound like? That sounds like Satan's been whispering in your ear like he did Eve, God doesn't want you to do that because he knows you can be like God. Well, that wasn't true, was it? It's still not true. But you and I know a lot of people that say, I'm the captain of my fate, I'm the architect of my destiny, I'll decide what's best for me. And all the while, you and I know, and the scripture says, that poor, deceived person has listened to the lies of Satan, and now they belong to Satan. You, you, don't, you are serving the prince of this world. And so we will serve God or we will serve Satan, and the illusion, that you're not gonna serve anybody. I did it my way. I'm gonna be the one who's in charge of all this stuff. I mean, if you stop and think about it, on its face, that's pretty silly. Even Nietzsche, like the world's biggest atheist ever. This is gonna be a little hard to read, but this is like, or understand, but it's really interesting. Nietzsche would love to have been God, but even Nietzsche knew he couldn't be God. He said, Anybody who's ever had i am st- I'm gonna paraphrase this, anybody who's ever had a stomach ache realizes we're definitely not God. That makes sense? It's very subtle, okay, it didn't make sense. But bottom line, even the biggest atheist ever says, we are kidding ourselves if we think we can control our own fate and our own destiny. Things happen to us and yet so many people do And the point is, that is Satan's greatest tool. It was in the Garden of Eden and it still is today. Did God say you shouldn't do that? Nah, you can be your own master. You can make your own choices. And that lie is the same as it was in the Garden of Eden. And so the scripture talks about the world in which we live. This is gonna make a lot of sense out of Revelation. It's actually gonna make a lot of sense out of the news. When you just read the news and you realize This is pretty much what you would expect the world to look like if Satan was in charge. Then you come in, and I don't wanna leave you hopeless in this lesson. Then you come into the church, you come into a community of believers and you go, well, this is not what the world looks like. These are people that are compassionate to one another. These are people that put others first. These are people that forgive. These are people that do the Sermon on the Mount These are people that care for one another. These are people that give to those who are in need. These are people who are a big family of adopted children of God. That doesn't look like Satan's in charge here. Exactly, that's why it's called the kingdom of God. You, not a place, you as a community, are the kingdom of God. That's the place where Satan's not in charge. Does that make sense? He is in charge everywhere else in the world, but wherever you find a community of Christ followers, Satan's not in charge. That is where Jesus Christ rules. That's the kingdom of God. And as powerful as Satan's kingdom seems to be, you and I know that judgment has already been rendered. And God is patient to await the execution of that judgment, because this is the way Jesus put it, by the way, in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 10. He said, I have many sheep who have yet to come into the fold. And God is patient to wait until all those whom he has called come home. And then the destruction of this world will happen. And that's really, in a, maybe we don't need to talk about Revelation. That's what Revelation is about. It's like, let me show you how the kingdom of God is gonna win over the forces of this world. Make sense? So, where are we? Part one of three. Part one is, what are the forces in the heavenly realms? I hope you know what angels are. You now know what demons are. You now know that there is a battle in the sense that you have this rebel group, and it's not just angels fighting angels. Satan says, i already been thrown out of heaven. I'm gonna make my little kingdom right here. Do you remember, by the way, when Jesus was tempted? I'm just referring to some places. If you don't know this, don't worry about it. Nobody was born knowing the Bible. I didn't know any of these stories either. But if you do know about the temptation of Jesus, what's one of the things that Satan tempts him with? He shows him all the kingdoms of the world, and he said, these are all mine. It was Apple Incorporated, there was Disney Incorporated, there was all these places. Everything in this world, he says, these things are mine. If you'll worship me, I'll give them to you. So what is Satan doing? Building a kingdom in this world is what Satan is about. But what is the one thing, because he's remarkably successful. His ad campaign is working real well, I think. You look around the world and you go, that guy's got a great ad company because he's got an awful lot of success in this world. A lot of violence and hatred and greed and deceit and everything you would expect that wouldn't be godly is going on in the world. So he's really successful. But here's the problem for Satan. He knows that God loves these people. He knows that God loves you. And he knows that God's not gonna stand by and let you die in your sins. He knows God's got a plan and he's been paying enough attention. He reads the Old Testament too. He says, he's got this deal called the Messiah. And the Messiah in some way, he doesn't have inside knowledge, but he goes, the Messiah seems to be part of God's plan. And when this Messiah comes, he's going to bring the kingdom of God. And Satan's sitting here going, last thing I need is somebody moving in on my territory. I don't want the kingdom of God here. This is the kingdom of Satan. And so I need to figure out a way to stop his plan to bring this Messiah, and I'm not gonna let him get a foothold. And so in our next lesson, now that we know who all the players are, I wanna show you what Satan did to stop Christmas from happening. All right, I'll see you next week.